And that is what happens in authoritarian regimes, that you sort of get to a point as citizens where you give up and you give in. And when people wonder why 74 million people voted for him, I think a lot of those people gave up and gave in. But the fact that we won and got rid of him is a huge credit to our country, because if we had lost this election, it would have been the end. Uh, we would have been in this for decades. Uh, you know, we would have been an authoritarian regime that you read about. So hats off to us. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. In this episode, I spoke with Amy Siskind. Amy is a former Wall Street executive turned activist and a well-known chronicler of the bad behavior of Trump and his administration. In 2008, Amy co-founded The New Agenda, a nonprofit organization dedicated to fighting sexism. She is president of that organization. After the 2016 election, Amy began to track the numerous activities of Trump and his administration that were just not normal. In 2018, she published them as a book called The List, a week-by-week reckoning of Trump's first year. In June of 2018, Amy started the Weekly List podcast to accompany her written list. I was very glad to catch up with Amy after the 2020 election. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Amy Siskind of The New Agenda. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from TimePlots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. TimePlots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Hi, Amy. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. Thank you for having me. So I am known right now as the keeper of the list, which is the first draft of history in the era of Trump. And in addition to that and related to that, I'm an activist for protecting our democracy Uh, I also run a national women's organization called The New Agenda, which seeks to get more women into leadership roles, and we do a lot of mentoring events. So obviously very pleased with what's happening now with the Biden administration. Prior to that, my first 20 years out of college, I I was a Wall Street executive, um, and I left Wall Street in 2006. So this is, I guess, the third chapter in my life working on the list and trying to get back our democracy and and perfect it a little after the last four years of Trump wreaking havoc on it. (laughs) Where'd you grow up? I grew up uh, in a suburb of Boston called Marblehead, Massachusetts. It's a small coastal town uh, north of Boston, and probably I'll slip up during our talk today and you'll hear my Boston accent come out. (laughs) I noticed that you went off to Cornell and did mathematics and computer science, which I thought was interesting as my mom was math at Cornell. 
What was that undergrad like for you? I started off as a math major and and probably should have stuck with math. It was the easiest for me, but I I switched over to economics because it seemed like more of the cool people were doing economics and math stopped being about numbers and started being about words. So I minored in math and I, I minored in uh, computer science in the engineering school back before we had cell phones and laptops and computers as we have them today, back with the, those old Apple boxes that we did computer programming on. And then found my way to Wall Street. Actually, it was a, a sorority sister of mine that suggested I enter a bank training program, which I did do, and um, commercial banking, and found my way then into sales and trading eventually. Had a lot to do with distressed debt trading. What does that mean? Well, that's how I know about Donald Trump. (laughs) 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 That's how I knew who he was. Um, Distressed debt trading. So I, I started off working for a bank that then a few years later doesn't exist anymore because we had so many, we had made so many loans that went bankrupt. So what I then did next is enter what was a business that was just starting the distressed debt marketplace where you would buy loans. In my case, I traded loans from banks who wanted to get them off their balance sheet and sell them to investors who would pay some price below hundred cents on the dollar for the loans. So I knew Trump because we traded, you know, the debt of his casinos, Trump Airlines, <laughs> and he was kind of a laughing stock of Wall Street. And so to me, the fact that having some banking background, the fact that Deutsche Bank would lend him money after he had all these bankruptcies just doesn't make any business sense. But that's what I did. Like companies, when they go bankrupt, um, banks have loans they can't afford to keep on their balance sheet. So basically I was like an intermediary of getting the loans sold to other parties who were looking to buy them. What did you like about that? You know, I I loved what I did on Wall Street. And I I think people like me, they kind of picked us out. I was a college athlete. I played field hockey. And, you know, the trading floor to me when I eventually got into sales and trading was – like being on a playing field. You have your teammates, you're in a competitive landscape, and you're trying to do the best you can. I liked the atmosphere of, of the trading floor. I, as a result, have a, um, what I guess you could best call a sailor's mouth. I do swear a lot. I liked the teamwork. I, I liked having clients. I had very close relationships with a lot of my clients who we were helping them get rid of things that they needed to get rid of, these loans off their balance sheet. And, and there was a a sense of trust and a sense of learning and understanding how to structure deals. So I did that for 20 years and um, really enjoyed it. I think I'm same era in college as you um, graduated in 88. A lot of the really smart people that I knew went and did that kind of thing, worked on Wall Street. It was a very attractive place for a lot of reasons, wasn't it? Yeah, things, I mean, the reputation of Wall Street has certainly been tarnished and deservedly after 2008 and 2001. And, uh, you know, the way that things, executives were not held to account and taking taxpayer money. So Wall Street needs to clean up its act. Yes, back, I graduated in 87. A lot of our classmates went to, uh, in my case, it was commercial banking. It was a British bank, National Westminster Bank, USA. 
but that was a very common. I, I think it's somewhat making a comeback. I'm very involved in Cornell and there was a few years where I would be back there and they wouldn't be able to get a single woman on the schedule when the investment banks and commercial banks came to campus to recruit because Wall Street had such a bad reputation. But I think we're on the other side of, of that somewhat, certainly in, on improving. From what I can tell, Wall Street's a pretty hard place to leave. People get well compensated. They continue to move around there. What led you to leave, to retire from that? You're correct. It's an intoxicating place once you've been there for a while. I, I, you make a lot of money. There's the power, the prestige. But for me, I, at that point, had two children. One was in first grade and one was in fourth grade. And I wanted to spend time with them and raise them. And I felt like I had the opportunity because of the work I had done to be able to financially do that. And I wanted to start a new chapter of my life to also start giving back. A lot of people I worked with stayed and a lot of people end up you know, burning out in very unfortunate ways. A lot of people I worked with ended up being you know, addicted to drugs or addicted to alcohol and, and dying young. It's a lot. <laughs> Once you leave, I mean, I miss it. I love the people I work with. My dogs, who you heard barking in the background, are both named after Wall Street colleagues. And I joke with my ex-colleagues that if you live long enough, you'll have one of my dogs named after you. So I was very fond of my, my teammates and my clients, but it was time to do something new. And that's now almost 15 years ago. Was there a political thread that goes back a long way or... What led you to start moving into more political interests? So I was one of the few, if only, Democrats that I knew in most places I worked, and they would mock me <laughs> endlessly. I, you know, I'd come back from picking up lunch, and there'd be a photo of whoever it was back then. Yeah, at that point, Bill Clinton or, or whatnot. You know, just like you know, defaced. Um, just to mock me. And I was not all of that involved. I was a Democrat. I, I donated to some candidates. I voted. Um, but I really got involved. It was actually two months before I left Wall Street and retired. I had gone to an event in June of 2006 with my daughter. She, she was in third grade and she had written a report about Hillary Clinton and Hillary was speaking because she was running for senator near where I was working. So my daughter came in and we went to the lunch and there were thousands of people at the lunch. And I'll never forget, like afterwards, my daughter brought her report up. I still have pictures of it. And Hillary took the time to read my daughter's report and ask her about it and then and then give her a grade, like an A at the end. And Amanda was just thrilled. It was such a lovely moment. And shortly after that, it was the Jewish holidays, and I was at Temple, and one of my friends, I've just left Wall Street, said, you should come to this luncheon at Eleanor Roosevelt Legacy Committee, uh, which is a group that tries to help um, pro-choice women in New York get elected, and uh, Hillary was the speaker. So I saw her there, and the woman who runs Eleanor Roosevelt Legacy, a woman named Judith Hope, was my first mentor in politics. She came over to me at the event. And she said, you, you should run and you should be a politician. Uh, you have that way about you. And I said, no, I'm just here. But shortly after, Hillary won her run for Senate to get reelected. And then Judith Hope started a group called Ambassadors for Hillary when Hillary then decided to run for president. And we had a meeting in uh, 2007 at a home nearby where I live. 
And that's when I got super involved in politics. I had volunteered for Hillary's Senate reelection, but when she ran for president is when I got very involved in politics. I was involved in that too. I was Hillary's chief technology officer in 07, 08. Were you? Uh, for the campaign, yeah. I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. That was a much different campaign in 2008 than 2016. I, 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 you know, I was very impassioned about politics because of that campaign. It was really very grassroots and... Uh, I really loved being part of that too. I was in the headquarters and it was complicated for me because my mother was very strong Hillary supporter. My siblings were strong Obama supporters. One of the nice things about it is I, I liked both candidates, even though I obviously had a rooting interest in the campaign I was working for. How did you view that competition between those two candidates that year? Oh my goodness, it's so long ago. It was a, it was a brutal awakening for me. And we're talking about Wall Street, which has a certain reputation of being a certain way. But I, I have to tell you, I didn't, I didn't really experience sexism that much in my day-to-day job in Wall Street. I kind of rose up the ranks and did really well. And so then to go through that election, it was an awakening uh, for myself. I remember many people writing at the time, an awakening for them as well to the sexism in our country and the way Hillary was treated and the disappointment with the Democratic Party for not defending her to what was really grotesque and overt sexism. I was really excited about the idea of having a very competent uh, ready, qualified woman to be our first president. And then to watch how she was treated was obviously formative for me because I shortly after with a group of women from around the country, when she dropped out, formed a national organization uh, to defend women from sexism from both parties. And I still do that. So yeah, I, I sort of feel like what Biden is doing now is sort of coming full circle for us, but people need to realize how bad it was back then and that there was no real structures in place to push back against it. I followed Hillary's career from very early and she was a client for my political software company starting in her 2000 run for Senate. And I never have really grasped why some people seem to view her so negatively. When I watched her run. I liked how she campaigned. I think my wife and daughters liked uh, her, rooted for her during the debates. What do you think it was? Part of it is sexism. It's not all of it. Yeah, I, I think there is, and this is also part of my work with my organization, which is called The New Agenda. There's a lot of women on woman hatred. It's just the way we are socialized. It's something that I personally and, and again, these, these were new things to me because when I was on Wall Street, a big part of what I did is what I subsequently did with the new agenda. I was always finding ways to help women get promoted. I helped co-found an organization in the distressed marketplace called Damsels in Distressed, where we would get together informally and try to mentor young women and help them up the ranks. So to me, the idea of that and women supporting women was just, it, it's the fabric of who I am. So, you know, witnessing what Hillary endured and the double standards that women put on each other and the natural woman hatred, holding her responsible for what Bill Clinton did 
And then on the other hand, what Donald Trump did seemed to be okay. You know, it, it's very primitive, Adam and Eve, <laughs> you know, kind of stuff that is, is something that we are socialized with as women in this country. And I think we've made a lot of progress since 2008. And I think what Biden is doing now will jumpstart that progress, having a woman of color as his vice president, having five of his first 10 picks be women, having those women and women of color you know, be in positions of power where children can see them that way and reimagine their world is the kind of change that I had always envisioned would be impactful. But you know, the fact that we ran this primary even in 2020 with this diverse group of candidates and ended up with a, a white man who has done, I, again, I credit Biden, he won and he's making good on his promise to have a very diverse administration, but it's still, that's where our country is. And yeah, thank God for the black voters in South Carolina and the black voters period in 2020 who helped us win this election and who picked Biden because they were smart enough to know that that's what was needed in our country to win an election. So, I'm, you know, I'm sad to say that here we are in 2020 yeah, um, and hopefully 2024, if Biden doesn't run again and Harris runs or someone runs, then we'll have a woman president. But that's where our country is. Uh, we have a long ways to go. I, I read you were upset enough to vote for McCain in, in 08. Is that true? It is. And it's a, a longer story. So I, I mentioned to you, so I had this meeting in my home shortly after Hillary had dropped out. And I was one of the very high profile supporters for Hillary at the time. And a group of us had met in, uh, shortly after she dropped out. And then I had this other meeting in my home where we formed the new agenda. But in between then, uh, and because I was a Wall Street person, the Wall Street Journal wrote about me and what are Hillary Clinton's people going to do next. And McCain had sent Carly Fiorina to my home to meet with a group of us. You know, McCain is unlike, you know, the world has changed a lot with the way I'm about to turn 55. It's not unusual for people my age, your age, to have voted for people in both parties. I grew up in Massachusetts, and many of my family members voted for their Republican governor. Now both sides have gone so far to their corners. But back in 2008, anyways, some, you know, it wasn't an impossibility. So I sort of set the table with that. But that was a long, brutal primary and, you know, without going into great detail about the primary for those who didn't live through it, there were some things that happened, I think, that left the party very torn. And rather than the outreach that happened with this year with, with Biden and Bernie of, of combining and getting everyone together, there was this feeling of you lost, get over it, which is pretty much exactly what we were told by then the Obama, the woman for Obama group. And so when we started our group, the new agenda, we decided that it needed to be nonpartisan uh, because sexism impacts women of both parties. But long story short, so Carly Fiorina had come to my home. And after we had this initial meeting, which also got a lot of press uh, in my home, she called and said, so what is it that you want to consider supporting McCain. And so we said, well, one thing that's very important to us is visibility, and we would like him to pick a woman vice president. 
and we gave him six names and Palin was one of the names. And at that point, she wasn't well known. She was just the most popular governor in our country. And there just weren't that many high profile Republican women to pick from, but she was one. And once he picked her, you know, it was like watching what had happened to Hillary all over again. And so we were the first women's organization. And I wrote a piece at that point, which was, it was the most read piece at the Huffington Post. And it started a conversation. It was called Sexism Against Conservative Women is Still Sexism. And it talked about the need to not allow this kind of thing to happen to women candidates of either side. And I, I personally felt at that point that that McCain had come through with uh, what we asked him to do. And um, so that was the one and only time that I have voted in a major office for a Republican. But it was, you know, to recognize what he had done. And, and so our organization then also got a lot of attention. And I started writing about things, looking at it from a woman's point of view and, you know, the importance of representation and advocating at that point for Obama to have more women in his cabinet, which he fell short on initially when he started. So we were just a new way of looking at things, and it was a new conversation for our country to think about sexism, period, but to think about sexism then in a broader context that impacts all women. And uh, that became much more mainstream in the next five to 10 years. But back then it was a, a revolutionary kind of thought. What has New Agenda meant for you? What have you been up to through that organization? Initially, a lot of the work we did was around speaking out against sexism for all women candidates. Things started to change. Like the 2008 election was an awakening and probably in the next five to 10 years, um, the tolerance for that I mean, the stuff that was done to Hillary, you can go look at the old videos from 2008, that would never be allowed on any of the mainstream cable TV stations, but that was happening every night back then. So there were more watchdog organizations, there were more women's organizations speaking out. So gradually, our need to do that was lesser than it had been. And we started to do formal mentoring. We do a huge event called National Girlfriends Networking Day that uh, we've done now for eight years. Uh, we do events on college campuses, and we also have a foundation whose main issue is campus sexual assault. And up through 2016, we were nonpartisan and really walked that walk. We wanted to be an organization that was inclusive for all women. And I have to say, we really have always prided ourselves on diversity. If you come to one of our events, the room will be half women of color. We were the first organization to have a transgender woman panelist back when that was like verboten in the women's organization sphere. Uh, so we've always been on the cutting edge of that stuff, but Trump stopped us in our tracks. Here I was, and I, I talked about in the beginning of our podcast, a woman who was the belief that to support women on all sides, he managed to pick women that even people like me who had defended women all along could not believe how horrible they were. I mean, Betsy DeVos has made mincemeat of all the progress that we made, the work of our foundation with campus sexual assault. She's become made that like a men's rights advocate group. Wish list. She's taken away all these protections for survivors uh, and victims. So 
what he's done, turning back the clock, which Biden now is undoing, but having rooms of all white men making decisions. So we shifted as a board. We met in 2016 and said, what can we do here? We're nonpartisan. We've always prided ourselves of being a place for all women. We've we have conservative women on our advisory board. Uh, and we decided that, you know, this was going to be a different time for these four years and we were going to have to be partisan and imposed to him because we decided, similar to my work, that this was really about authoritarianism. And so we started holding what we called red tent events where we would send out information to people around the country to hold events locally about what Trump's policies meant for women. So that was eye-opening for people to raise awareness of how these were going to impact women in very bad ways uh, and and very significant at-home ways and education about that. So unfortunately, with the pandemic this year, we're not able to hold our in-person events, but hopefully towards the end of 2021, we'll be able to get back to doing that. But I have personally mentored probably hundreds of women to help them, and I continue to have connections with these young women to help them find their way to make connections. It's been my life's work throughout my time since college. I'm, I'm curious about how you viewed Trump as he got into the race. You had said that he kind of in the debt world thought of him as a laughingstock, but when did you start taking him seriously or worrying about him and how did you view his, you know, defeat of Hillary? I initially heard him speak when he gave a speech, I think it was in the beginning of 2015. And I recognized right up front that he had a very talented way in the way Bill Clinton did of talking about complicated topics in a very simple way, which I believe now is just the way he understands them. But at the time, he was talking about the seeing boats off the coast of California with cars on them coming in and you know, the import. It was, it was him bringing it down to a very basic point to talk about the trade wars, but he did it in such a way um, that was very relatable. And that caught my attention right away. I, I never imagined he would make it through the Republican field and be their nominee. I found him entertaining kind of the same way I can find him entertaining now, knowing that he's out the door. Like I was laughing when I heard his Georgia rally because I knew he was supposed to help Purdue and Ossoff and he was all about him and these videos that he had from Newsmax. I, I can be amused about him again, but he was amusing until he wasn't amusing. And once he became their candidate, it struck nerves for me, like very deep nerves reminded me of the authoritarianism that I had read about with Hitler and being a Jewish American. Again, I never thought he would be the candidate, but once he was, what he was speaking about was very not normal. And the nature of what he was doing to get support was not a typical Republican kind of paradigm. So it alarmed me enough that after he won, I started keeping the list of not normal things he was doing. And at the time, especially because I'm a woman. I was like, oh, she's being hysterical, da, da, da. But no, I just saw it early. I, I saw it early. There were others who did as well, but I, I knew right away that something was not right. Once he took office and before he took office, pretty much right after the election, but certainly at the, at the tail end of 
once he became their candidate with the RNC in, in July of 2016. I worried all fall that he would, was going to win. I was highly concerned about it. I spent the time after wondering how much I had to worry about him, wondering if he would pivot into some kind of normal president. I think a lot of people did. And kind of tracking myself every day, like, is this stuff he's doing with North Korea? Like, how dangerous is this? It was very hard to find normal on any day. Every day was chock full of scary stuff. But you started this list. What was in the first one? And and why was that the medium that you went into? I, like many of us, had plans for my life after Hillary won. (laughs) Her winning being the full circle of the work for the new agenda, which she was the the impetus behind and her being elected. But when that didn't happen, and I had gone to meet her plane when she landed in Westchester at 4 a.m. before election night, and I had all these plans for what came next. Uh, and I had plans that weekend to go to a spa with friends to celebrate because I'd been all over working for Hillary again in 2016. And then that didn't happen. So I just went to the spa alone and I you know, brought books and started reading more and more about authoritarianism. Things were happening at an alarming rate. The number of hate crimes, what Trump's response to those hate crimes was to grant them understanding just the unusual way things were occurring. And so not that Saturday after the election, but a full Saturday after I went to Eleanor Roosevelt's home, Val Kill, Eleanor Roosevelt is sort of my North star in life. And I had been reading about the importance of writing things down, that we would be like a frog in water coming to boil degree by degree and not notice. And I think Eleanor's messages, and even though it's a place I've been to so many times I could give the tours myself, just seeing it again in that light and knowing our democracy was in danger and the fact that she wrote her My Day column, I went home that night and I started keeping a list. And I have my book open now to week one, which is November 13th through 20th, 2016. And there were just nine items, but there were things like Trump tweeting attacks on the cast of Saturday Night Live, the New York Times and Hamilton. Uh, (laughs) And that is just not normal. So the first week was nine items. The second week was 18 items. And then after that, it started to grow because he started to do more not normal things. And by week three, people would say to me, well, I see all of these things on your list, but I missed four of them. Can you start to add links? And so in, in week three, I started to add links. But I could already see by week 10 when it started to really go viral, and that's when I had 2 million views a week, that we were already normalizing things that were abnormal right away and allowing things that were previously unthinkable. So the process happened really quickly, and what's happened over the four years is Whatever he's been allowed to get away with, he just pushes that boundary that much further on every issue. You know, we had the tax march the first year to want to get his taxes, and now he ran for re-election. And we still, other than the New York Times getting uh, copies of them, would not have seen his tax returns. That's just you know an example of what it started off like, but then what we forgot about. Because we were living for four years in a nonstop frenzy state. 
And that's by design. How did an audience come to you? Did you work to obtain one? Did it just happen because you were doing this early and there was such a demand for that kind of information? How did that happen? It, it was all organic. And I had just passed half a million followers on Twitter. When I started doing the list, I think I had roughly 1,200. I had a bigger presence on Facebook because uh, I was known for the work that I'd done for Hillary's campaign and for for the new agenda. So I had maybe 10,000 followers there, but I started posting the list each week on Medium, and then I would cut it and paste it on Facebook and, and Twitter. And Again, it just started spreading around and people would share it, especially on Twitter. And that's how my audience gradually grew. And the whole effort has been very grassroots by design. The woman who does all my design work for the new agenda helped me put together a formal website uh, so we could show pictures and put videos and other information on it. Uh, but when we did that effort, we everything was grassroots. So this whole time that I've done this, I wanted it to be a project for history. And, and it is going to be um, finalizing the details. It's, it's going to be um, archived at a major university as part of a collection about this period in time. We have worked through ways to figure out ways of having the links live on. So 100 years from now, when people want to do research, they'll be able to get to the, that information. So that way it will be, the list will always be accessible for future generations. And so that was the importance for me to, that, that this would be documented and that the truth would remain because the whole project really has been about telling the truth and not allowing that truth to become an alternative truth, which is what four years of Trump has done to our country. I know that you published that the first year as a book and the book did well, I think. What, what do you think was the most egregious thing that happened in that first year? Oh. <laughs> That's a really tough question. I think the overarching problem in the first year, which got better each year, was that the people who saw what he was doing in that first year were minimized and called hysterical. It was largely women who recognized the problem and people of color because we were impacted super quickly and some of us just, it didn't feel right. But media in the early years was still normalizing him and trying to, until really 2019, make him into just another Republican. You know, when he did the summit with Kim Jong-un, they had the Super Bowl clock on CNN counting down the hours. Yeah, so our media had a certain complicity in normalizing him. And those of us who saw the damage were screaming inside our heads and not being taken seriously until we were right. <laughs> and now it's sort of very mainstream and understood. But back then, those were the hard parts of those first couple of years. And I think it was the Washington Post in their book review, compared me to the Sentinels, which are the ones who early on in these times of crisis are sounding the alarms, but are viewed, you know, a lot of people called me the Cassandra of the time, viewed as crazy. You know, I, I saw what was happening, but no one wanted to believe it until really 2018 and then 2019, it became more mainstream. 
if if you're one of the key chroniclers, who who else do you think was doing a good job in their way of kind of tracking the story as it was happening? You know, I'm the only only one who sort of tracked it this way in a methodical week by week list of not normal, but the people that led me to do that, I, I wrote about them in my introduction, my book, Marsha Gessen wrote a piece in November, 2016, which was really one of the main reasons I started keeping the list about what it meant to have an autocrat in America. And I refer back to her piece. It was in the New York Times Review of Books, I think, in, or New York Times Magazine. I refer back to it only because it was so presciently correct in everything that it predicted. And so there was a certain comfort to me that what we were experiencing was not unusual, that it was something that happens in authoritarian regimes. And Masha spoke about him appointing extremist judges that would hurt the credibility of the court, uh, appointing an attorney general who would be his personal attorney. I mean, all of these things have happened before. So it sort of gave me a sort of comfort that we were not living through something that I couldn't understand or navigate through. What was different and we were able to do, unlike these other authoritarian regimes, is that at the end of it, we were able to vote him out really quickly compared to what happens. Usually these kind of regimes stay in power for a very long period of time. And so I found that my efforts towards the end and around the election, the American psyche had been so beat up by him. And people compared it to being in an abusive relationship. And that is what happens in authoritarian regimes, that you sort of get to a point as citizens where you give up and you give in. And when people wonder why 74 million people voted for him, I think a lot of those people gave up and gave in. And I really found myself in the months leading up to the election and after the election, including up till now, comforting people and telling them it was going to be okay, that we were going to have an election, that we were going to win that election, and he was going to leave. And I think having gone through this project for four years, in some ways, ignored me to what he was doing to people to play with their psyche. I could see him and know him and understand his patterns and what he was doing, because I've been living with him for four years, 24-7. So at the end, that was an advantage. But the fact that we won and got rid of him is a huge credit to our country and um, our resilience as Americans to rise up, because if we had lost this election, it would have been the end. Uh, we would have been in this for decades. Uh, you know, we would have been an authoritarian regime that you read about. So hats off to us. But that was sort of the gift of, for me, of having done this project on the other side. Well, what has it done to you sort of psychologically to be tracking it so closely? Well, I had to get a mouth guard in 2017 because I was clenching my jaws. <laughs> and I remember sitting in the room where I, uh, I was seeing, um, I, I had a cracked tooth and, and my dentist sent me to a root canal doctor to just make sure it wasn't needing a root canal. And she was a short Indian woman and she started laughing. She said, this is what happens in dictatorships. You're screaming in your sleep. 
And as I was waiting to see her, I was reading an article that day by Dana Milbank of the Washington Post, an op-ed where he was talking about going to his doctor and his blood pressure being up and, and his, his vitals not being as strong as usual and his doctor saying that this was because of the stress of Trump. So for me, because I was in it early on and I was screaming in that first year that I was at the Cassandra screaming something was wrong it had an impact on me right away. And in the first year, it took me at the time I wrote the book, it was taking me about 20 hours a week to do the list. And the longest number of items in the list was about 120 as we closed out year one. Uh, As we closed out year four, it was 300 items a week. So I was spending 50 to 60 hours a week working every day till 11 or 12 at night to keep up with him in addition to the rest of life. So, you know, I'm I'm basically in Trump detox now. I'm still listing until he leaves, but the number of not normal things has really, really slowed down. And so I'm just catching my breath again uh, and catching it in the midst of a pandemic. It's going to take me a while to get back, you know, to whatever the new normal is. But I, I am certainly enjoying for the first time in the last four years, not having to work every Friday and Saturday and sit at my desk. (laughs) until 11 o'clock every night. So regaining my life. (laughs) I mean, you you use words like dictator, autocrat, authoritarian. In my view, he's a wannabe of those. Obviously, he didn't have the power to lop off anyone's head arbitrarily. He had incomplete powers because of our system, thank goodness. What makes it in your mind, fair to go all the way to those names with him? Well, I don't view that he was ever a Republican. I have videos on my website of his first year in 2017, and there was never, and this is something that alarmed me right away, you know, with Republicans, you normally have um, a set of policies and issues that you're trying to advance. Trump never cared about any of that. He cared about making money and staying in power. And everything he's done in his four years goes back to that. And that is not a normal Republican, George W. Bush, Ronald Reagan, even if I don't like them or agree with them, they had policies that I don't agree with. Trump wasn't interested in the policies. He was there to seize power. And the stuff that I documented in my list and we'll be hearing about and reporting for the years to come, uh, you know, you saw it in the New York Times article of his tax returns, he was selling our national interest to enrich himself. Now, licensing deals. I'll give you an example. I guarantee you we're going to find these licensing deals with Turkey that he got paid. He made millions of dollars doing were why we pulled our troops out of Syria. In a, his alignment with dictators in the first week of the list, his belittling of NATO. This wasn't ever about his being interested in being president beyond cashing in on being president. So, and people like him don't view it as, you know, a political system. They view it as more akin to the mafia, that he was just going to have this and stay in power. So I I never viewed him as anything but an authoritarian. Whether he was a successful authoritarian is another thing. He just, like everything else he did in life, was a failure at it. If he was a talented authoritarian, he would have, you know, instead of us talking about these states and here we are after the safe harbor date and him still trying to overturn the election, he would have 
had those levers in place before the election, which is so important, makes it so important that we codify these things so this doesn't happen again. But that is the one thing that saved us, that he was an authoritarian, but just not a good one. (laughs) And he surrounded himself increasingly by incompetent loyalists. So it doesn't change who he was. It just changed, you know, what he was able to accomplish. And what happened in Florida with DeSantis sending in these thugs, this Gestapo to raid a a watchdog's home and clear out all the data about coronavirus that she had been tracking on her dashboard. That's the kind of thing if Trump had won, we would be seeing left and right in this country. Uh, You know, it would have been the end of our democracy. And thank God we rose to the occasion. How do you understand the the game he's been playing with vote fraud claims that started, you know, in the summer and continue to today? Well, he did the same thing in 2016. He was sowing the seeds of doubt with the election to protect himself. And I often say for these past four years, I wish I had a law degree and a, a psychology degree to understand him more. But Having read Mary Trump's book, you could kind of predict out everything that was about to then happen, that if he did lose, which he didn't necessarily envision, because anytime he's lost in his life, and this is something Mary writes about, daddy has been there to clean it up for him, to funnel money his way when his casinos were going bankrupt, or he had lawyers that would sue banks that were calling in loans. So he's never been held accountable for anything. So for him, this is uncharted territory, and he doesn't know what to do. And I think just like in 2016, he was planting these seeds in case he lost, but then he surrounded himself by incompetent loyalists who told him what he wanted to believe up till now. And so when he lost, he didn't know what to do. There wasn't a game plan. And I, I just do not believe he's capable of... Uh, you know, again, I don't have a psychology degree to explain why other than you know, reading Mary's book and talking about what we've seen. He, he's not capable of admitting loss. He's not going to ever concede, but he's going to have to leave. And he lost. The one thing I, I did not count on in the Republican Party will never cease to amaze me in the negative sense, as bad as they have been for the past four years, that they would. Here we are five weeks out of an election and only 26 out of 249 have acknowledged that Biden won. It's 10%. And the voices that we had, I mean, we, we, we talked about McCain. Those are you know, the, the leaders I admire in this country, the people that do put country first. And they're just the ones that were like that in the Republican Party. Obviously, McCain was the big one. Left government or have been silenced. And uh, it's... An embarrassment to the world for our country, what the Republican Party is doing now. But in, in six weeks, he'll be gone, and um, Biden will be, you know, stepping in. So, end of story is coming. Well, my worry is it's not the end of the story, and that Trump is freezing the presidential field for 2024. That there's a lot of predictions that his hold on the electorate and the other Republican leaders will dissipate, but that might not be the case. He seems to have a knack for keeping his name and face in the news. And I worry that if things don't go well uh, in the country, 
you know, still problems with this virus or others, that he could win the nomination again. And in a time that bent towards change, we could find him back as a problem or one of his offspring. Do you worry about that? I, I worry that people that were on the field like you for four years are going to take a breath and that our guard will go down. Again, I view all of this differently because I've been so like close to it that I, I, I feel these things intuitively. I would be shocked if he is going to be the candidate in 2024. The only reason I believe he got those 74 million votes or parts of those votes beyond his real core base is because people had given up and given in. And what happens with authoritarian leaders, these strong men, when they leave, you see their approval dissipate or their following dissipate. Uh, and I believe that will be what happens, that he's he's such a bully uh, and people have kowtowed to him that once he leaves, you're going to see him fade. I, I don't believe he or any of his kin, <laughs> the royal family, will be uh, involved in 2024. I believe that they, in conjunction with Mitch McConnell, who is a very evil person, will do whatever they can to undermine Biden as he enters and wipe away information and make transition hard to undermine Biden, even though it means the American people will suffer. I don't, I think we've learned now after four years, they don't care. I don't believe they will be a factor in 2024. What I do worry most about is Biden, the way he's handling this in terms of trying to stay above the fray and the conciliatory stuff is fine. And I'm, again, I, you know, again, I talk about McCain. I like people who can work across the aisle and get things done. But if Biden does not have accountability for what has happened, if he does not make an effort to codify the kind of stuff that we're living in now, I mean, these are all like unprecedented times that we would have a leader who would not concede. Our founding fathers did not envision this when they put together the Constitution. My concern is that Biden and being the nice guy and wanting to be above the fray will not hold them to account, will not get these things codified. And that somebody potentially better at being an authoritarian and wanting to retrace Trump's steps and do it in a competent way could enter the fray. And that is a concern. So I, I will be, and I think others will be as well, in Biden's ear, however, whatever way I can be in Biden's ear to say we have to codify this stuff. This cannot happen again. Uh, he's pulled every lever possible and left it open for the next person to push them further. So that is, to me, the most important thing we can do over these next four years. It's going to be awfully hard to make substantial changes to the rules without a Democratic Senate. Yes. Georgia is super important. Yes. Yes, I'm aware of that. You know, you might have this ability, but I don't like to count on them again, the way that they've fallen down on us. You might see some of the Republicans who are more moderate work with Democrats to realize, you know, after this is over. But that's a hope. I mean, I, I, listen, I'm doing, I did two events for Georgia last week. I've raised 300000 for Georgia. I am doing whatever I can, Georgia and, and getting our Senate, to me, is the most important thing I'm doing right now. So, yes. That will determine how successful we are. 
How do you view your impact? You have been working so hard for these years. You've got a lot of people reading what you've written. You've been speaking. You've, it sounds like raising money. What do you think gets accomplished collectively by all that effort? My hope for the last four years is just that I've produced a living document for history that the truth will be told about this error because you can already see the Republicans are going to try to rewrite what happened. And the gift of my list is the truth that they're not going to be able to you know, forget what was done for four years and to see the way it escalated and how far boundaries were pushed. People are already and will continue to use it as a basis to write about and think about things that need to be changed. You know, to close it out, I'm getting asked a lot now, are you going to run for office? Are you good? I've been asked that for four years. And I, I'm an activist and I think, you know, some activists end up running for office and then I, I don't believe in that agitating from within the system. I believe you agitate from outside the system to make change. And I'll be somebody who will use my voice to agitate from the outside to try to get our democracy to be a more perfect union. We have a lot of work to do. We didn't enter 2016 with a perfect democracy. We have so many issues that we need to be better at and to take our country forward. So I'm hoping that this can be a reset, uh, Biden's victory and the pandemic to make our country a better place to restore voting rights, to make our country more fair to you know, people of color and you know our criminal justice system and all the other ways that we have failed as a country and being this great melting pot in this experiment in democracy. You know, we stood up for it and now we, I think, you know, begin this journey of, of reinventing what we can be. And I'd like to be part of that as somebody who pushes on and encourages, but helps to raise up the voices that are going to you know, lead the way for us to do that. It's certainly been a time of stress testing the system. Yes. (laughs) I think of what you've done as very entrepreneurial, you know, like this is political entrepreneurship. What do you think are the characteristics looking back that make someone a successful political entrepreneur? I think this thing for me that enabled me to do this for the past four years is grit and about a year into it, the Washington Post wrote a piece to Margaret Sullivan about my project and list. And that was another thing that really brought it to the public eye. And she asked me, like, why, how are you able to do this? A lot of people started. Why did you keep going? And I think playing college sports or playing sports and, and going, showing up for practice in two days over the summer to get ready for the season. It's just who I am. I, I, I show up every day. And I think a lot of success in these things is being consistent and being there and being willing to sacrifice. And I'll just close out with an antidote that I often refer back to for myself. My, my uncle, Benny, fought in World War II. He was a pilot and his missions were up. He had flown enough and he, they asked him to come back and to just train other pilots. And as a Jew, he said, no, I want to go back and get Hitler. His plane went down on one of these missions. Ironically, my son found it <laughs> researching World War II vets, uh, was able to find where his plane went down. It's in France. My family was able to go to a, a memorial for his burial, for his, his crew going down. 
But I always think about my Uncle Benny and how important democracy was for him and fighting for the rights of those who didn't have a voice. And that, to me, was what these first couple of years were, starting with the Muslim ban and the travel ban and the way Trump was going after the others throughout these four years. That, to me, is just a, a deep call in how I was raised you know, with Eleanor Roosevelt as my northern light and as my, you know, my Uncle Benny. So these were things that I, I just felt were important to where we are as a country, to preserve our democracy and fight for those who don't always have a voice. Well, I honor your work in that. Is there a question I didn't ask that you wish I had? I'm, I'm trying to think how to phrase the question, but when it started to become more well-known in 2017, so I'd been waiting for the right person to write about the project and the right place to have it as sort of its coming out story. And the Washington Post, I felt in these past four years, did the best job of journalism and reporting on the Trump era. So when Margaret Sullivan reached out to me, I was so excited to have somebody and, and have her be the person to write about the project. And that was in June of 2017. And then shortly after, uh, somebody who read the piece had it nominated for the Library of Congress. So one thing I was really concerned about in the first year, and actually the impetus for me putting the first year into a book, was Trump early on was wiping away information. And I was super concerned that, and we've had issues with our website being hacked and whatnot, I was super concerned that the information would disappear. So I was so thrilled when the Library of Congress said they would archive it. And I asked them to grab it each week, just knowing that it would have a safe place. And I was really on the fence about doing a book, didn't really have any desire to do a book. But the reason I put the first year in print was the concern about the list being wiped off, being wiped off the internet and wanting to have it in print somewhere living. Just one other side note, after I had an article written about the list being archived in the Library of Congress, the Russians started coming after me and started writing articles calling me a radicalized lesbian. I even had a a weird Russian show up at one of my book events and had to call security. So the idea of having it preserved back then just seemed super important. Now, towards the end and knowing it's going to be archived, that was the first thing after the project, I wanted to make sure that it would have a safe home at a major university uh, that could keep it safe and preserve it for you know, the coming decades. I mean, it's interesting that the the radicals, when they come to power, as they did with Trump, call the people who actually want to preserve the system that we had radicals themselves. That was Amy Siskind. She's at amysiskind.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.